every passage in Mark 9 and 10 that Eric and I have preached and will preach in the next couple of weeks are illustrations and applications of what Jesus taught about the cost of discipleship in Mark chapter 8 when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This morning, Jesus will show us that being his disciple means denying yourself in your marriage, taking up your cross in your marriage, following the suffering service way of Jesus in your marriage, losing your life for Jesus' sake in your marriage, losing your life for the gospel's sake in your marriage. Brace yourselves. Following Jesus in marriage will cost you your life. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Father, um, maybe sometimes when we say, thanks be to God, it's a little harder than others. uh, Because your word is sometimes harder in places. And yet we thank you even for this hard word. Father, I pray, Jesus, I pray that you would tend your lambs in this room this morning, that you would shepherd them, that you would, as you had promised, carry them, carry us. It is evident that marriage is so central to human life because it is evident how sensitive we are to its brokenness. And so this morning, help us, Jesus. Carry us, we ask, for your sake. Amen.
my friend Tim looked at me like he was a man who had just been shot at but missed. With his eyes wide open, he said, what if I had just ignored the symptoms? Pancreatic, pancreatic cancer is no joke. I wouldn't be eating breakfast with you right now. That's what he told me on Thursday over breakfast at Pruitt's. About a year ago, Tim began to notice some things just weren't right in his body. He said to me, listen, I've had this body for 62 years, so I know when something's not right. Tim saw his doctor. They ran some tests, did some blood work. Then at about 3 o'clock one afternoon came that phone call that none of us wants to get. Tim, I want you at the hospital tomorrow morning. We're going to do an MRI and some other scans. His friend and doctor seemed serious, and Tim asked, are we talking about cancer? In tears, his doctor friend said, yeah, potentially one of the worst. Tim, you need to get ready for what's ahead. Sure enough, it was. It is one of the worst, pancreatic cancer. Only a 7% survival rate. 7% survive. What if Tim and Laura and their doctor friend had looked at the symptoms, the blood work, the scans, and said, this doesn't look great, but listen, we're in a busy season of life right now. Why don't, why don't we look into this when we've got more time? If Tim and Laura and his doctor had ignored the symptoms and signs, Tim would not have been sharing breakfast with me on Thursday. He would not be sitting right over there this morning. But they didn't ignore it. And our physician friend Jesus has something sobering to say to us this morning. Something that will be difficult, perhaps even devastating, for us to hear. And he loves us enough to tell us, friend, you've got cancer. It is the worst. I call it hardness of heart. That's what he's saying to us in Mark chapter 10. We read that Jesus left Galilee and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So there's Jesus again, surrounded by people, and he's teaching them. And Mark says, Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let's be clear. The Pharisees were not coming to be taught by Jesus about marriage. They had no interest in what Jesus was teaching. They were coming to test, not be taught. And we have to stop right here and ask ourselves before we go any further, do I want to be taught by Jesus about marriage? Do I want my physician friend Jesus to do the lab work, run the scans, and tell me the truth about my heart, and about my marriage. Mark says that the Pharisees came to test Jesus. 
It's really just plain silly if you think about it. The creatures are coming to the creator to test him. But it's not just silly, it's also sinister. The word for test there that Mark uses is the same word he uses in Mark chapter 1 to describe how Satan came to test and tempt Jesus in the wilderness. That tendency to side with Satan is in all of us. All too often, our default response to the teaching of Jesus on tough tough topics like this is skepticism, not submission. Our culture is becoming more and more skeptical about what God's word teaches about marriage and divorce. But I'm not here to rail against the culture. Rather than rail against the culture, let's look at our own hearts this morning. Because the truth is, if you, you, you may not be able to have a whole lot of impact on what's going on out there, but you have impact on what's going on in your house, and I do in mine. But what about us? Have I come to listen to Jesus this morning? Have I, have I come to learn from Jesus? That's what I had to ask myself as I prepared for this message. Because Jesus has been asking us over and over again in the book of Mark so far, do you have ears to hear what I'm saying to you? Do you have eyes to see what I'm showing you? Do you have a heart that wants to receive what I'm saying and be transformed? So as we come to this teaching from Jesus about marriage this morning, I want to ask, as your pastor, as your friend, where's your heart? I have been so nervous about this (laughs) because I know that simply bringing up this topic causes all the hearts in this room to be pulled in a thousand different directions. All of us have been impacted by the brokenness of marriage, our own marriage or another's. And some of those broken marriages ended in divorce, our own or another's. So we can't escape it. We, we see marriage and divorce on a bulletin and, and our hearts begin generating question after question, pain on top of pain, shame upon shame, guilt, self-condemnation, fear, anger, bitterness. And then for some of us, it generates pride. After all, my marriage is fine. Or it may generate smugness or self-righteousness. God hates divorce, don't you know? So hear me say, I know this is hard. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But please stay with me in this passage this morning. This passage will not address all of your questions and concerns about marriage and divorce. But what Jesus is asking us to do is listen to his concerns about marriage in Mark 10 today. So stay with me. The Pharisees did not have ears to hear or hearts to receive what Jesus had to say about marriage. Do we? So let's stop right now and ask Jesus to give us hearts that are willing to receive whatever he has to say to us this morning. You you may want to pray something like this throughout this sermon. Jesus, 
this topic makes me uncomfortable, angry, sad, confused, fearful. Tell him however it makes you feel. Part of me wants to run away. Part of me wants to fight you about this. Or you may be one of those who say, this doesn't apply to me, so. But that's just where I am right now, Jesus. Uh, but I, I want to listen. I want to learn from you. So teach me, and then give me the strength and humility to submit to what you say. Amen. Now, if we will listen to our physician friend Jesus and submit to the scan of his teaching, we'll find that there is that cancer in all of our marriages, a cancer he calls hardness of heart. The Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, watch what happens here. They are trying to test Jesus to see what he will say about divorce. But Jesus turns it around to test them, to test their hearts as it relates to marriage. And so he answers their question with a question, as he is prone to do. Well, what did Moses command you? Jesus is so wise. I, I, just love, I just love watching how he does this. In order to answer their question, he asked them to think about all that Moses commanded about this subject. It's as if Jesus was thinking, now when I ask these theologians, these Bible scholars, to tell me what Moses commanded about divorce, let's see where they start in Moses' writings. Let's see what they emphasize. And that will tell us what they're really after here. You see, as Jesus is going to show us in a minute, if you want to understand Moses' command about divorce, then you have to start with what Moses commanded about marriage. And for that, you'd have to go back to the beginning of all that Moses commanded. You'd have to go to Genesis 1 and 2, which we read this morning. But the Pharisees didn't start where Moses started. They, they skipped to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Ah, see? The Pharisees were not interested in what Moses commanded about the purpose of marriage. They were focused on how Moses permitted divorce. So our physician friend Jesus has exposed one of the symptoms of that, that cancer he calls hardness of heart. This is it. This is the symptom. The Pharisees' hardness of heart had them focused on getting permission to divorce not on growing in the purpose for marriage. They were more concerned about how to get out of marriage than what it means to be in marriage. Even their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, showed that they viewed marriage as a legal contract, not a loving communion. Notice they didn't ask, is it loving for a man to divorce his wife? They were more concerned about what they could get out of marriage than what they were putting into marriage. 
This is their bottom line. If I can't get out of this marriage what I want, then I want to get out of this marriage. And you may wonder, so how do we know that was what was going on in their hearts? Well, it has to do with what was behind this question. So we have to dig into Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 just for a minute. Because there's a raging debate among the Pharisees in Jesus' day over, over the meaning of Deuteronomy 24. There are two schools of interpretation. What did Moses mean by, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce? What did he mean by that? The more conservative teachers said that the indecency had to do with something morally shameful. Perhaps it was some kind of sexual sin, but it could have been some other shameful failure to keep the Jewish law. It was not likely adultery because there was already a law for that. Commit adultery, you die. So that's the conservative end of the spectrum. Then on the more liberal end of the spectrum, those teachers had a broader definition of indecency. They argued that in addition to any moral, moral indecency, anything which caused annoyance or embarrassment to a husband was ground for, grounds for divorce. They were influenced by Moses' phrase, if she finds no favor in his eyes. And so they believe they could divorce a woman for burning dinner. Seriously, for burning dinner or because she no longer looked attractive. So that's the two ends of the spectrum. One's fairly conservative and one is just wide open. If she annoys me or embarrasses me, she's out. Now, we're not going to look at it today. Jesus has a higher standard than both of these. The parallel passage for this one is Matthew 19. And Jesus gives an exception um, for divorce. He gives a biblical grounds for divorce in, in this same story in his response in Matthew 19. It's not in Mark, I believe, because Mark assumed... Um, that this was the norm, and, and it was in that day. Jesus in Matthew 19 said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So that's Jesus' exception. But we also know that Paul added another exception in 1 Corinthians 7, namely, when one spouse abandons or deserts the other, the divorce, that's grounds for the victim party to be out of the marriage. So there are two biblical grounds for divorce, divorce, sexual immorality and desertion, adultery and abandonment, we could say. But these are not our focus this morning. I'm not going to answer all your questions about that. What Mark wants us to see this morning is this. These Pharisees were hyper-focused on looking for loopholes to get out of their marriage. One commentator explained this way. This is important for you to understand the background of Deuteronomy 24. He said that that mosaic regulation in Deuteronomy 24 was interpreted by many in Jesus' day as meaning, if you wish to divorce your wife for any reason whatever, go right ahead, but be sure to hand her a certificate of divorce. 
The real meaning of the passage, however, is this. Husband, you had better think twice before you reject your wife. Remember that once you have put her away and she has become the wife of another, you cannot afterward take her back, not even if that other husband rejected her or died. See, Moses had mentioned the bill of divorce only in passing, but the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day placed all the emphasis on the certificate of divorce. While they were always stressing the Mosaic concession, Jesus constantly emphasized the principle, namely, that husband and wife are and must remain one. So again, the hardness of their hearts said, if I can't get out of this marriage what I want, then I want to get out of this marriage. And I had to ask myself this week, is this my attitude toward my marriage? Is my focus on what I get out of my marriage to Christine? Even if I'm not to the point where I want out and I'm not even close, does the hardness of my heart lead me to mainly ask, what's in this marriage for me? Do I have the guts to admit, as Tim Keller suggests, that my self-centeredness, my self-centeredness is the main problem in my marriage? So friends, at this point, all of our hearts should be crying out, but it's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. And it's not. When Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, he's referring to the hardness of heart that began with the first married couple, Adam and Eve. The hardness of heart that every one of us has now. That's what our physician friend Jesus is trying to get us to see. My hardness of heart is destroying my marriage. Marriage was meant to be more than two me-first hearts coming together to suck the life out of each other like two ticks and no dog. It's not supposed to be that way. My hardness of heart is keeping my marriage from being all that God created it to be. Your hardness of heart is keeping your marriage from being all that God created it to be. And so, yes, we should grieve when our hard hearts hurt and hinder our marriages. But as Jesus is getting ready to show us, we should grieve even more that we've lost God's heart for marriage. And that's why Jesus now turns to remind us of what God created marriage to be. Jesus said to them, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is where it gets exciting. Do you hear? Do you hear the beauty and glory of what God has created marriage to be. Jesus said marriage is from the beginning of creation. So I thought about that this week. Like the distant stars and the deepest seas, like the planets and pear trees, like sunrises and sunsets, like mountains and monkeys, like tastes and smells and every hue of every color 
like every person, place, or thing. Marriage is one of the beautiful, good, and true wonders that God created in the beginning. It's a wonder. Marriage is a match made by heaven on earth to display the glory and greatness and goodness and gladness of God. Let me say that again. Marriage is a match made by heaven on earth to display the glory and greatness and goodness and gladness of God. Well, that's a tall order. How does that happen? How does marriage display such things about God? Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. Do you hear the contrast? The Pharisees want to send her away. Jesus says, hold fast. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Why does he have to keep repeating himself? What's all this talk about two becoming one? Who are the two? Male and female. The man and the woman each reflect something about God, about who God is in their maleness and in their femaleness. The tender strength of a God who is both personal and powerful, is put on dazzling display in our maleness and our femaleness. Together, men and women reflect the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, one is male, one is female. Now what's all this about two becoming one? Dan Allender explains this well. He says, Adam's need for a counterpart to form a two-yet-one relationship points to a dimension of being made in the image of God. In their interdependence and mutual delight, the first couple are a reflection of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe I can say it this way. The two-in-oneness of marriage puts the three-in-oneness of God on display. The oneness of the relationship between a man and wife puts the oneness of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on display. As Allender said, the Trinity is a beautiful dance of interdependence and mutual delight. Throughout church history, a Greek word has been used to describe this dance, this relationship among the Trinity. It's uh, perichoresis. Fancy word, perichoresis. Listen, just hang with me. This is, this is good. R.C. Sproul describes perichoresis. He says, Perichoresis means that the Father is in the Son, is in the Holy Spirit. He goes on. We can distinguish the divine persons, but we cannot pull them apart. 
they exist in one another. The Father dwelling completely in the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son dwelling completely in the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwelling completely in the Father and the Son. As Jesus put it in John 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's perichoresis. It's a relationship among the members of the Trinity that can only be described as a dance. Can you imagine if your marriage was a perichoresis? Let's think about that for just a minute. We would say, if your marriage was a perichoresis, we would say, look at that couple over there. We can distinguish the two persons. There's the husband, there's the wife. We cannot pull them apart. They exist in one another, each one dwelling completely in the other. They are intertwined in mind, soul, body, purpose, faith, hope, and love, yet they are distinct personalities. They exist for one another. Neither of them are diminished by the other, but but are rather lifted up by the other. There's a humble interdependence between them, There's a shared delight in one another. Each one exists to love and serve and honor the other. And look how they turn themselves outward to love and serve others together, each offering the gifts they uniquely possess. It's beautiful. It's absolutely breathtaking. It reminds me of God. Isn't that what we would deep down love our marriages to become? Deep down, we know that we are made for that kind of knowing and being known, for that kind of loving and being loved. Again, Allender says, marriage is meant to transform each partner, and through that merger, the interplay of two new beings Reveal our great and gracious and most surprising God. Any other purpose for marriage, he says, is too small. So, let me try to... And this might be a problem, sorry. So, this circle represents marriage. You're going to have to get a degree in Egyptian hieroglyphics to read my handwriting. But let's say the center of this marriage is this idea of oneness. Two in one. Outside of this circle is divorce. The question for all of us is... Which way are we headed? Where is the trajectory of your marriage taking you? Toward oneness or outside of oneness until the point where it crosses that line and ends in divorce? Or is your marriage moving ever so slowly, inch by inch, toward oneness? toward oneness oneness that can only come through your oneness with Christ. The question is, what's the trajectory? So so this, this message Jesus is 
is talking about is not just about people who are on the brink of divorce. It's for all of us to ask the question, which way are you moving? Toward oneness or toward separateness? No wonder Jesus added this commentary and command, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Because that word joined literally means to be yoked together like two oxen yoked together as a team that pulls in the same direction. What God has yoked together should pull together in the same direction toward oneness. One commentator explained that this way. He says, according to Christ's teaching then that we have been joined, yoked together, husband and wife form a team. They work together. They worship together, plan together, pray together, play together, parent together, pull the load God has given them together in the same direction. What therefore God has yoked together, let not man separate. And this is what makes the me first mindset of the Pharisees so pitiful. Their heart is bent on separating what God has joined together for his glory. The hardness of our me first heart shows itself in a separation mindset. And I'm not using separation in a legal way. I'm using it in a relational sense. The me first heart is prone to separating. And the more I look at this passage, the more I think Jesus is not simply referring to the separation. Do not separate. Man should not separate. He's not simply referring to the separation of divorce, but to the separation mindset that happens even when a man and a wife are still together. They are still together, but their hearts are not together. They're not pulling in the same direction together. They are separate. And like the symptoms and signs of a cancer that has been ignored, that separation mindset will metastasize, spread, and eat a marriage up from the inside. And so I ask all of us this morning, is the way we relate to one another in our marriages more separated or together? It's all too common that we live separated because of our hardened hearts. So what should we do with this? Bear with me. Bear with me. What should we do with this? I think Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, are very, very helpful and practical here. So I'm going to take some extra time to share this with you. Tim and Kathy say, in Western culture today, you decide to get married because you feel an attraction to another person. You think he or she is wonderful, and they probably are. But a year or two later, or just as often, a month or two, three things usually happen. First, you begin to find out how selfish this wonderful person is. Second, you discover that the wonderful person has been going through a similar experience, and he or she begins to tell you how selfish you are. And third, though you acknowledge it in part, you concede 
that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than yours. This is especially true if you feel that you've had a hard life and have experienced a lot of hurt. You say silently, okay, I shouldn't do that, but you don't understand me. Keller says the woundedness that makes us the woundedness makes us minimize our own selfishness. And that's the point at which many married couples arrive after a relatively brief period of time. He goes on to say that at this point, there are two paths to take. The first path you could take is deciding that your hurt and woundedness is more fundamental than your selfishness. You believe that if your spouse does not see your wounds and try to help you, it's not going to work. The marriage could then end or it could go on with emotional distance growing due to a ceasefire and not talking about the problem. But another path, the biblical and better one, Keller says, is to determine to see your own selfishness as a fundamental problem and to treat it more seriously than you do your spouse's selfishness. Why, he says, because only you have complete access to your own selfishness and only you have complete responsibility for it. So each spouse should take the Bible seriously, should make a commitment to give yourself up. You should stop making excuses for selfishness, he says. You should begin to root it out as it's revealed to you and you should do so regardless of what your spouse is doing. Ugh. And he finishes with this. If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect for a truly great marriage. If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. But my problem is, where do I get the humility and the courage and the power to admit that and to live like my hard-hearted selfishness is a fundamental problem in my marriage and I'm going to be more serious about my selfishness than hers? Where do I get the humility and the grace and the power to live that way. Friends, we will only be able to do that when we confess that we, the bride of Jesus, we, the bride of Jesus, we are the adulterous ones. We are the ones who have abandoned him. And yet, he has loved us time and time again he has loved us, his adulterous bride. He remains faithful in the face of my infidelity. Paul said, Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, the water, of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, his bride. All of us here this morning who are or have been married are guilty of hardened hearts that hurt or hinder the oneness that our marriages were made for. 
So you may be here this morning and, and maybe you're saying, I've been divorced. I did not have biblical grounds for divorce. And I know, I can confess that my hard-heartedness caused our marriage to fail. Maybe that's you. Or maybe this is you. I've been divorced with biblical grounds. But still, I know that even though I wasn't the one who committed adultery, I wasn't the one who abandoned my spouse. I know my own hard-heartedness hurt my marriage in many ways. Or maybe this is you. I'm still married, but I know that my hard-heartedness is hurting and hindering my marriage in many ways, even now. If any of these describe you, and if you are trusting Jesus as your only hope for forgiveness for those sins and more, then hear this good news. Jesus Christ loved you and me and us, his adulterous and abandoning bride. And Jesus gave himself up on the cross for you that he might sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of water with the word about his life and death and resurrection so that he might present you to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any more hard-heartedness that you might be holy and without blemish at that great wedding supper of the crucified king. Four things to walk away with today. Number one, Jesus said that marriage is made by God for one man, and one woman for lifelong oneness that reflects the glory, goodness, greatness, grace, and gladness of God. So if that's true, then by God's grace, work on the oneness in your marriage. Christine is excited that I'm preaching this sermon today (laughs) because she knows We need to work on the oneness in our marriage. Pull together toward the center, toward Christ and the two-in-one oneness that only he can create in your marriage. You know, Tim told me Thursday morning as he's rejoicing in his health right now, he said, but cancer is resilient. It's resilient. Your hard heart is resilient. So be killing sin or it will be killing you in your marriage. And some of you may be thinking this morning, Jimmy, I, I want that oneness in my marriage. I long for that kind of sweet communion. But I have to be honest and say, if you'll permit me just to think about the other one for a moment, I have to be honest and say that my husband or my wife doesn't want that oneness, doesn't get that oneness, and I can't make them want it or get it. Believe me, I've tried. I want us to pull the load together in one direction, but he won't go with me or she won't go with me. 
I know. And I'm sorry. And I want you to hear me say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it was made to be. So all I know to do is to tell you to continue to grieve the loss of what was supposed to be in your marriage. And as you grieve, also remember that you have union with Christ. Rest your broken heart in the comfort that you are yoked to Jesus. And keep pulling with him in the same direction together. And if you are yoked with Jesus, even though that direction may go down into suffering and death, you can be sure that he has promised he will pull you up into resurrection. Rest in that promise. Ask your brothers and sisters to help you rest in that promise. Number two, although divorce is not God's plan, divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of adultery or abandonment. Therefore, divorce is not always sinful. How can you know whether you have biblical grounds for a divorce, and and even if you do, if you should still pursue it? Seek the counsel of your small group, your elders, your Christian brothers and sisters. Listen, uh, One of our elders, Jeff Morton, has beautiful pictures for what it is that we are to be for each other in the body of Christ and what we as elders hope to be for you. He says that sometimes we're a sponge, sometimes we're a mirror, and sometimes we're a window. Sometimes we're a sponge, and and if you come and talk to us as your elders, we'll try to absorb the pain with you. We'll try to... Soak it in. If you come talk to us, we'll sometimes have to be a mirror and show you, and maybe you'll see the hardness of your heart in it. But we also want to be a window where we can point and say, there is hope. As long as there's Jesus, there's hope. It doesn't mean it's going to fix everything. But he's faithful. So if you need to talk, come talk to us. Number three, hear me. If you or your children are being abused in your marriage, hear me say this clearly. Get out. Get out. And talk to somebody today. We will help find help for you and we'll sort out all the details of your marriage but for now you and your children need to be safe talk to us number four finally remember all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory that God intended for our marriages even those of you who think my marriage is great you too have fallen short of the glory that Jesus presented for your marriage. The hard-heartedness in each of us has hurt and hindered our marriages, but know this for certain. Jesus paid for every sin of every person who belongs to his church, his bride. Therefore, 
the divorce of one of his own is not the unforgivable sin. The divorce of one of his own, even if it is sin, is not the unforgivable sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, as the great Puritan pastor once said, for every one look at yourself and your sin and your past, take ten looks at Jesus. Take ten looks at your bridegroom who loves you and gave himself for you. Friends, we cannot afford to look at the symptoms of hard-heartedness in our marriage, to read the scans of the word of God in Mark 10 and say, well, this doesn't look great, but listen, we're in a busy season of life right now. Why don't we look into this when we've got more time? We can't afford to do that. Jesus, our physician friend, loves us as we are and where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are and where we are. And he loves us enough to tell us the truth in tears. Friend, you have cancer. It's what I call hardness of heart. But come to me, faithless spouse of mine. For I have been and I will be always faithful to you. Father God, help us. Help us, your people arrest our hard hearts in our faithful bridegroom, Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen.